The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's been the Roberts Court for nearly 15 years, but that term has new meaning as Chief Justice John Roberts is not only the chief, but is clearly now the swing vote at the ideological center of the court. Speaking at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute three years ago, Roberts said that Chief Justice John Marshall was his model for a chief justice. He appreciated the role of the court uh, in sort of bringing the United States together under the Constitution, under the rule of law. And he had a very particular focus. He's the author of some great decisions that define our nation, uh, but he also had a very modest and measured understanding of his job. So he was very restrained. He had a way of diffusing political controversy and focusing on a case. Roberts may display some of Marshall's attributes, but his power, especially in cases involving divisive cultural issues in our country, exceeds that of almost any other chief justice. Roberts cast the deciding vote in all ten cases this term in which there was a five-to-four decision. In the past two weeks, the chief stunned many conservatives by joining with the liberal justices to strike down limitations on abortion rights, to save dreamers from deportation, and to expand LGBTQ rights. But he sided with the conservatives to boost religious schools and the president's power to fire the head of an independent agency. Joining me is Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Hal, everyone seems to agree that the chief is an institutionalist. Some critics have even used that term against him. Explain what that means for a chief justice. He cares about the respect and the integrity of courts in general and the Supreme Court in particular. Famously, he retorted to President Trump, there are no Trump judges or Obama judges. We just have judges. And he wants the judiciary to be viewed as out of the partisan fray within which it's too often dragged. And so he's trying to build up a kind of a, not just an esprit de corps, but a reputation for judges as being, if not umpires, at least being thoughtful, independent jurists who the public can rely upon. Is that true of most chief justices? Do they usually have that kind of impetus to protect the institution and the judiciary in general? Well, it makes this so unique in our time in history is the division in the court. We all think, and most times it's true, that the chief can be the deciding vote in a close case. So many other chief justices have not had this sort of breakdown of four liberal and four conservative justices. And of course, he's conservative. He's very conservative. But yet he cares not just in rubber stamping conservative results, but in trying to build this integrity for the court. And that's been manifested in some of the recent decisions of the term. Let's talk about some of the high-profile cases involving divisive issues, where the chiefs sided with the liberal justices to make the majority. On Monday, there was the abortion rights case where Robert said he was bound by precedent. And what's remarkable about this case is that four years ago, he voted to 
uphold the very serious restrictions on abortion access that Texas has provided. Louisiana copied Texas's statute, and then four years later, Chief Justice Roberts decides that because he lost four years ago, he should lose again now, which is pretty extraordinary. It suggests that he doesn't want the court to be seen as just because there's a change in personnel, they change the results. That's really what's at stake here in the decision. And he just said, I want people to understand that we're a court just because we've a different, that we've gone become more conservative. We're not going to unravel what just occurred four years ago. Very sort of bold step forward by the chief. Then you have the decision upholding DACA, which echoed the census case where the chief you know, wasn't buying the Trump administration's explanations and said, you have to do better. Yeah, and part of this seems to me, I don't think it's really a direction against President Trump at all, but I think it's a recognition that if we're going to be tough on agencies, we need to be tough on agencies when they're Republican, as well as be tough on agencies when they're Democratic. And so in the DACA case, he basically told the agency, the Department of Homeland Security, that it couldn't go back and give a better rationale or justification for the rescission of DACA. Because the first time that they tried to explain it, they just said, oh, Obama didn't have the power. And that really isn't a satisfactory explanation, even by the dissenters in the case. But they went back several months later and gave, I think, a relatively coherent justification for why they were changing Obama's policy that should have been held constitutional. But that initial failure to the chief was enough for him to break away from the conservative justices and say, you know, we're going to hold your feet to the fire and you're going to have to give a persuasive explanation at the time you change your policy. You didn't do that. And so you go back and accomplish the same result if you want to, but you're going to have to do it the right way in the future. An interesting decision, again, somewhat like the census case, as you mentioned, which said that even though he's very sympathetic to the end result, he went with the liberal wing of the court in striking down the Trump administration's effort to really change one of the signal accomplishments of the Obama era, which was the refuge for the dreamers. The decision that really drew a lot of political heat was the LGBTQ rights in job discrimination case in which conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch joined with Justice Roberts in the majority. Yeah, so here we have a slightly different situation on one hand because Justice Gorsuch did split with his conservative brethren in that case, which made it a six to three decision. But what's interesting from Chief Justice Roberts' perspective is he was a notable dissenter from the gay marriage case, very eloquent, I might add, and then he decided to vote with the majority here. And the difference you could say is that we're now opining about a statute, the reach of what Congress meant in 1964 whereas the Constitution obviously is more enduring. And what might be seen in these cases is that the chief will be uncompromising in his interpretation of the Constitution. And we saw that in the CFPB, the Consumer Finance Privacy Bureau, but that he will give on agency action, he will give on statutory action, he will be more, you could say it, independent, more institutional binding in those types of cases. He has been the deciding vote in all of the 5-4 votes this term, and he also has the power of being the chief. So beyond the swing vote, has any other chief justice in our history had that kind of power? 
given the composition of the court, he is exercising the power much more effectively than his predecessors had. Some people think Chief Justice Hughes, way back when, 75 years ago, during the FDR days, had somewhat similar power in terms of trying to keep the court independent, despite FDR's insistence that they change course. But of course, they finally did buckle under to FDR and did become much more giving or welcoming to the rise of the national government and its agencies. But you have to look that far back. I mean, certainly the numbers speak for themselves. We've never had a period of history, at least in the last probably 50, 75 years, where the chief justice has been able to dominate the court's rulings. I think 98% of the cases in the last two years or so, he's been in the majority whether it's 5-4 or 6-3, and he's able to have that kind of incredible influence. is really unique in our history, and we're seeing how it's played out. People say he's an incrementalist, which means he doesn't want to air out too many issues. He's been using the certiorari power to limit the type of controversial cases that go to the court. The court recently has decided to reject many cases involving the Second Amendment, which is the gun rights issue, which is a hot-button issue, many cases involving sanctuary cities, another hot-button issue, cases involving qualified immunity. And in all these cases, he's trying to sort of tamp down the political acrimony on the court and I think slowly build up the court stature for the future. And if it's a 5-4 case, he's in charge and he decides who writes it. And he knows if another justice will write the decision broadly or more incrementally, and he tries to adopt a more incremental approach wherever possible. It seems as if many conservatives are forgetting some of Robert's past decisions. For example, one that he got a lot of criticism for was the voting rights case. Yeah, I mean, both in in the Voting Rights Act cases and particularly in the gerrymandering cases, he's been incredibly conservative. And again, just this week, this is the first abortion case he's ever sided himself with those favoring a right to choose. So this is the first time. So he's been very conservative in many cases. And the hot button case for this term will be the Trump taxes, and we'll see what he does. If you consider justices... David Souter, Sandra Day O'Connor, and Anthony Kennedy. Does how long you're on the court play a role in changing the way you view cases? My own opinion is Chief Justice Roberts is not changing. Certainly, I think he has been somewhat disgusted with aspects of President Trump's rule, but I think he's fundamentally conservative. We're not going to see that kind of Souter switch or Justice Stevens' switch or even Justice White's switch. But yet again, I think the the layer for Chief Justice Roberts is not that he's becoming more moderate, but that he really sees a crisis for the court, and he's in a unique role to do everything he can to try to help the respect and dignity of this august institution. Thanks so much for being on Bloomberg Law, Hal. That's Harold Grant, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. In a 5-4 to four decision down ideological lines, the Supreme Court gave religious schools a victory this week, ruling that states that offer taxpayer subsidies to private schools must do the same for religious schools. 
Chief Justice John Roberts joined the conservatives on the court in the decision that lowers the wall between church and state. In the majority opinion, Roberts wrote that the Montana Supreme Court violated the U.S. Constitution's protection of the free exercise of religion when it threw out a scholarship program because most of the money went to students attending faith-based schools. His reasoning echoed that expressed by Justice Samuel Alito during the oral arguments in the case. There's a difference between saying we're not going to fund religious activities and saying we're going to discriminate based on religion. That's the point. They, the state, nobody's claiming the state has an obligation to make particular grants to religious institutions. My guest is Richard Garnett, a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. Would you call this a landmark ruling? Did it go beyond previous decisions on religion? So yes and no. On the one hand, it's a very natural and probably expected next step from a case that was decided two years ago called Trinity Lutheran. That case involved a program in Missouri that provided recycled tire parts to various nonprofits that they could use for playgrounds, but it excluded a religious daycare center from participating. And the court said there that if the government's got a general benefit program that it makes available to qualified applicants, it can't selectively exclude religious applicants. And the court in that decision was seven to two. And there were some interesting little cryptic footnotes that made it clear that all of the justices were aware that the next question was going to be, and the next case was going to involve schools and school funding. And that's exactly what happened in this Espinoza case. So in that sense, it's a, again, it's the other shoe dropping. Now, on the other hand, if you step back to kind of 30,000 foot level, the case represents a very interesting and pretty clear change in the court's doctrine over the last 40 years, let's say. Even 50 years ago, the Supreme Court would have been very skeptical about whether the Constitution even permitted governments to provide neutral scholarship benefits to kids attending religious schools. There were all these decisions in the 70s and early 80s where the court struck these down as violations of the separation of church and state. But over the decades, the court's doctrine has just evolved and it's moved away from what some would call kind of strict no-aid separation to more of a neutrality approach where uh, as long as religious beneficiaries are being treated equally to non-religious qualifying beneficiaries, that's permissible. And then you add to that this idea that the free exercise clause doesn't permit discrimination. So one way to see what's happened over the last several decades is that assistance that might have been impermissible 30 or 40 years ago is now, under the new doctrine, required. We went from not allowing even neutral aid now requiring even-handed funding. You know, we see developments in the court's doctrine in lots of areas all the time, but certainly in this area, there has been a change. Critics would say that the Roberts Court seems to be blurring the line between church and state. Is it on its way to erasing the line? Yeah, I think critics would say that. I think they'd be mistaken. I mean, a lot of it depends on what one thinks the appropriate line between church and state is. So I think the Roberts majority believes, and this is probably my view as well, that the separation of church and state is about keeping religious and political power separate. At its core, it means, you know, we don't want bishops deciding what the tax rate is, and we don't want politicians deciding what songs they're going to sing at mass. But properly understood, the separation of church and state in the American tradition has never ruled out all forms of cooperation between religious entities on the one hand and government on the other. So, you know, people who returned from World War II used government funds on the GI Bill to attend Notre Dame and Boston College. Religious hospitals have been getting reimbursed by Medicare forever. 
the government funded all kinds of educational and other projects working with religious nonprofits. It delivers all kinds of social services to low-income people through churches now. So the separation of church and state is an important principle in our tradition. But I think what the Roberts Court believes is that it's a mistake to think that separation rules out all forms of cooperation. And, you know, education is a public good. It's a secular good. And if qualified education is provided by a religious school, I think the Roberts Court's position is that that public good isn't somehow tainted just because it's being delivered by St. Cecilia's rather than PS 126. You could briefly explain the chief's reasoning in his majority opinion. Sure. You could think of it as having two steps. So step one is to say, and this has been the law now for a while, that a state is allowed to provide, it's permissible to provide um, uh, neutral, even-handed aid, whether it's a tax credit or what have you, that's what, that's what this case involves, to kids attending religious schools. Then at the next step, you ask, well, Montana has decided that it's going to provide aid to secular private schools, but not religious uh, private schools. Is Montana permitted to do that? Because as the chief frames it, that's a form of discrimination. You're saying, here's a benefit. Uh, you can use it at secular private schools, but you can't use it at religious ones. So is that is that discrimination permissible? And under the court's doctrines, uh, discrimination like that, you know, different differential treatment like that is only permissible if it's necessary to promote an important government purpose. And the chief justice says, well, the government doesn't have an important public purpose. Indeed, it doesn't even have a legitimate public purpose in denying funding that the Constitution permits. So although some critics frame this in terms of separation of church and state and so on, I think for the chief, this is really a case about equal treatment and non-discrimination, right? The free exercise clause requires, um, among other things, that religious activities and religious believers not be discriminated against just because they're religious. And as he saw it, that's what this Montana rule did. It didn't say that the Education being provided, you know, wasn't of a certain quality. It didn't say that the beneficiaries were somehow disqualified because of income or something. The only reason why the benefits couldn't be used at these schools was because of the religious nature, the religious status, as he calls it, of the schools. And so that kind of discrimination on the basis of religious status is under current law is very hard to justify. And again, Montana's reasoning that wasn't determined to rest on a strong enough government interest to justify that discrimination. The dissent basically said, you know, Montana is treating people neutrally because it closed down the scholarship program to all. And Justice Sotomayor called this decision by the majority perverse. Without any need or power to do so, the court appears to require a state to reinstate a tax credit program that the Constitution did not demand in the first place. The dissenters have a number of kind of lines of attack. Um, one line of attack is that the dissenting justices believe that the established, I think they, they believe that there really are strong establishment clause reasons why a state would want to not fund religious schools. Um, they don't necessarily come out and say that they want to reverse the Supreme Court's decisions permitting school choice, but it's clear that for the dissenters, they're more sympathetic to Montana's desire just to keep public funds away from religious schools. So that's that's part of what's going on on the dissenting side. Another thing that's going on, as you said, is that there, there was a pr- kind of a procedural 
oddity in this case, which is that what the Montana Supreme Court did was to say, you know, no, no one can get the benefits of this um, tax credit program, whether they're going to secular or religious private schools. So that, that was the remedy that the Montana court granted. But I think what the majority uh, says in response is, look, the reason why the Montana Supreme Court shut down this program was because of its interpretation of the Montana provision, which requires discrimination against religious schools. So the, what the, in a sense, the majority and the dissenters are talking past each other a little bit because the majority says, look, the Montana court did what it did because of this discriminatory um, Montana provision. And the reason why these parents ended up losing the benefits that they were otherwise entitled to was because of this discriminatory provision. But as you point out, the dissenters say, well, you know, maybe it's an interesting theoretical question whether um, this kind of discrimination is unconstitutional. But in this particular case, what Montana did was treat non-public school kids the same. So in a way, the dissenters are focusing on the Montana Supreme Court's remedy and the majority is focusing on the Montana constitutional provision. And that that, that is a really interesting point of of disagreement uh, between the two i i suspect that um the four dissenters would have dissented in any event that is even if the um even if the montana supreme court had only singled out the parents who were attending religious schools i, I think the dissenters position is being um driven substantially by this idea that Montana should be permitted to decide not to fund religious schools. That's really the that's really the, the sticking point between the majority and the dissent, I believe. Thirty-seven states have these Blaine amendments that block religious schools from getting public funds. Are those yeah. now unconstitutional? Well, so a couple of things there. So the first thing to keep in mind is that um, a lot of these these provisions in the various state constitutions. There are slight but often important variations among them. So, you know, state state Supreme Courts have the primary authority to interpret state constitutions. And with respect to a lot of those provisions, the state Supreme Courts have already said, you know, these provisions, we know we know how they're worded, but we think they actually do permit things like vouchers and tax credits and scholarships uh, so long as they're neutral. So. Um, this opinion doesn't do anything to undermine or to change the law in those states. So a state like Arizona is an example. It, it has a, a, Blaine, a Blaine Amendment type provision, but the state court had already interpreted it to allow even-handed funding. But with respect to those states, like Montana, um, you know, my, my neighbor state of Michigan, I think is another example. With respect to those states that have interpreted their own constitutions to require um, discrimination against religious schools, then what this latest Supreme Court decision means is that those state constitutional provisions can't be enforced. The Supreme Court can't tell a state like, hey, take that out of your constitution. That's not how it works. But given the Espinosa decision, the states can't use their state constitutions in order to require or to excuse differential treatment in these kinds of programs. 
How far does this decision open the door to more public funding of religious education? Well, it opens the door in the sense that it permits the legislative process to consider this issue, right? So this decision doesn't require a state to have a voucher program or a scholarship program or anything like that. Um, but, you know, for the last several decades, a lot of times um, uh, political movements to get more school choice have kind of bumped up against these provisions. Um, these provisions have stood as kind of an obstacle to choice-based reform, even in states that have wanted to enact it. So what this decision says basically is, look, going forward, um, these Blaine Amendment type provisions, they can't stand in the way of even-handed school voucher programs. No state's required to adopt them. A state, if it wants to, can say public money is for government-run schools only or government-run schools and charter schools only. But what this decision does mean is that if a state decides, no, we're open to some experiments with programs that allow kids to use scholarships and tax credits at private schools, they can't single out religious schools for exclusion or flip it around. Since most private schools are religious in a lot of states, what this decision means is that the option of including private schools in your, in your kind of menu of publicly funded options that option is now available, but it's still going to be a political decision, right? It doesn't mandate school choice. It just kind of opens up the debate a little bit. And now people have to uh, convince each other what the best and most just and most efficient way they think to fund educational opportunity is. This was another decision with a five to four majority where the chief was the deciding vote or the swing vote. Yep. What's your take on that whole thing about the chief being now the most powerful chief justice almost in history? History is big, and I, I, I think there's a lot to admire about John Roberts. I suspect he wouldn't want to say that he was more powerful than, say, John Marshall or something like that yet. But um, this year has been interesting. This has been a year where he's been in the majority of all the closed cases. As for the swing vote thing, I'm not sure that fits in this case. Roberts has, for the entire 15 years he's been on the court, been entirely consistent, I think, in law and religion cases. He has voted in every case that I can recall in favor of free exercise claims. So this, this isn't a case where his vote in the majority is some kind of a surprise or goes against other things he said. Again, he wrote the decision just two years ago in Trinity Lutheran. In the past, some justices like uh, Justices Kagan and Breyer have joined with the more conservative justices in some of these religion cases. And here, the, the more liberal block of justices all, all stayed together. Thanks, Rick. That's Richard Garnett, a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. How far does this decision open the door to more public funding of religious education? Well, it opens the door in the sense that it permits the legislative process to consider this issue, right? So this decision doesn't require a state to have a voucher program or a scholarship program or anything like that. But for the last several decades, a lot of times political movements to get more school choice 
have kind of bumped up against these provisions. These provisions have stood as kind of an obstacle to choice-based reform, even in states that have wanted to enact it. So what this decision says basically is, look, going forward, these Blaine Amendment type provisions can't stand in the way of even-handed school voucher programs. No state's required to adopt them. A state, if it wants to, can say public money is for government-run schools and charter schools only. But if a state decides, no, we're open to some experiments with programs that allow kids to use scholarships and tax credits at private schools, they can't single out religious schools for exclusion. Thanks, Rick. That's Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, the chief joins with the liberal justices in giving abortion rights activists a win. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.